let's just uh, review a little bit from just from 41, just from the beginning of these chapters that are dealing with specific emotions and how to develop them. So we spoke about in chapter 41 that there are two major emotions. What are they? Love and fear or love and awe. And which one are we going to start with? Yira, awe, which sometimes we call respect. Okay. <coughs> then in 42 we spoke about how to develop fear, awe, reverence, respect, boundaries, at least the lower level of it. And uh, we explained why it's a small matter. Remember the whole question is, is fear a small matter? Yes, from Meishadabena. Well, what good does that do me? And we said that there's a spark of Meishadabena within each of us. And that spark of Meishadabena within each of us is our faculty of? What was the, if chapter 42 could be summarized in one word, what word would that be? Remember, das, yeah, the internal Meishadabeno is das, the ability to take an abstract concept and relate to it with such focus that it becomes as real to us as anything we've experienced with our senses, yeah. Okay, and then in 43, we spoke about two levels of love and two levels of fear. Spoke about Ava Rabba, the great abundant love, which there's really nothing to go do to get it because it's a gift that is given to those who are perfect in every other way. And then the lower love, which is called Ava Soilam. Why is it called Ava Soilam? Remember? Mel Brooks, remember? You look in the world and you see the stuff you already care about, and then you remember associative property, right? A equals B and B equals C, therefore A must equal C. So if there's stuff in the world that I care about, and Hashem made the stuff that I care about, so I must care about Him, right? Right, transitive property, correct. Yeah. Um, and then we spoke about two levels of fear. Chapter 43, remember that? Spoke about the higher level and the lower level. You know, boishis, the shame-faced fear. That's where I don't even want to exist. I just want to shrink into... Well, I do want to exist. I just don't want to exist separately from him. I want to just be absorbed in his oneness and not be separate because who am I to be separate in front of him? And then we spoke about the lower level, which is... Um, thinking about the vastness of creation remember that wow factor and remembering how small we are and sort of being humbled by that and then in 44 we spoke about two more types of love and those were hybrid forms of love that combine aspects of the first two forms of love. In other words, the first two forms of love, Avarabha and Avaselam, the distinction between them were that Avarabha is given and Avaselam is developed through meditation. And then in 44, what we were learning about were two types of love that you gotta meditate on them, but they're really, they're not whole cloth new feelings, they're really developing feelings that are there because they were given to us, or the kernel of those feelings was already given to us. You remember those two forms of love in 44? My soul, I desire you at night. That means that just as I innately desire my life force to fill my body, so too I must desire Hashem because I realize that He is the life of all life. And then there was Kibrod Ishtadl, like the son who strives to give nachas to his parents. 
And that's actually even more intense because Nafshi Vesicha Balayla is I love Hashem as much as life. Kibrod Yishtadl is I love Hashem even more than my life. I would give away my life in order to give him Nachas. And both of those loves from chapter 44 are based on innate natural wiring, but we expand them through meditation. So they've got a little bit of both aspect of uh, both aspects of that which is innate and that which is developed through contemplation. And here we are, chapter 45. So far so good? So all sounds familiar? Roughly familiar? Yeah? feel like it's a cognitive overload because there's a lot of different stuff. There's a lot of different parts here, a lot of different. But if you want to just keep it simple, it's love and fear. Okay, you can just always come back to that love and fear. And then different kinds of love and fear. What are the different kinds? I don't remember, but you know. <laughs> the hundredth time I learned Tanya, I'll remember. Right? 101st. 101st. Oh, good reference. What chapter is that a reference to? Fifteen. <laughs> good. Okay. Okay. Chapter forty-five. You can't really hear me. Chapter forty-five is an interesting type of love. Um, well, I already sort of gave it away right now. I said it's an interesting type of love. I'll tell you. A lot of times, you hear people, you know, well, I guess it depends where you hang out. <laughs> a lot of times you hear people talking about chapter 45 as a different emotion other than love and awe. Right? Don't you hear people saying that all the time? That's like my personal pet peeve. I'll be sitting in a restaurant and I'll overhear the person in the next booth saying, well, you know, chapter 45 is a different emotion other than love and fear. And I'll just have a compulsion to go over and correct them. Well, in certain circles, I should say, those who study Tanya, you do hear this sometimes. And it's actually a uh, misconception. The misconception is based on the idea that there are three main emotions, chesed, gvura, tiferes. Chesed is kindness, and that's the root of love. Gvura is containment, which is the root of awe. And then tiferes, beauty, it is beautiful because it is a harmonization of the two extremes. And emotionally, it's expressed as rachamim, rachmonis. Back in 88, when Bill Clinton was uh, running for president, he went to Borough Park, and he, uh, some, some speechwriter wrote this line for him, and it was a home run. He said uh, <coughs> to the Ilum in Borough Park, he said, do you want a president who has rachmonis? or a president who is a Rachmanis. <laughs> of course, there were peals of laughter and uh, <clears throat> went over very well. Rachmanis is compassion. Compassion is a combination of love and awe. And generally, the reason why we say that is this. Chesed, kindness, True, unbridled, or unadulterated chesed is indiscriminate. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Okay. The nature of chesed is to be magnanimous, and therefore it does not discriminate the object regarding the, who will be the object of the kindness. Gvura is quite the opposite, and that's why Gvura is associated with din, with judgment. Din is discrimination. 
I know that word is a trigger word nowadays because people associate it with wrongful discrimination, but there is a good kind of discrimination, like every single Saturday night when we make Havdalah and we discriminate between the six work days and the seventh day of rest. Distinction, Havchana, it's one of the brachas that we make. It's actually in the Shemayin after the first three brachas, it's the first bracha we make. When we ask Hashem for Das, we ask Him for the ability to use that Das to, das to discriminate. To discriminate meaning to, to make distinctions. So Chesed does not discriminate. And Gvura does. Chesed says, I'm not looking at how worthy the recipient may or may not be. I'm just in a mode of giving. Gvura is the opposite. Gvura is, I am judging the worthiness of the recipient, and I've, in fact, judged the recipient to be unworthy. I'm not giving. That is why I'm going to contain myself. I'm withholding. Tiferes, the blend of the two, comes out as rachamim because it's giving, but it's giving where appropriate. When do you feel pity? When something is pitiful. So you feel kindness because you're feeling kind. You're in a mode of kindness, and therefore, if you're walking down the street handing $100 bills, it doesn't matter if the person who receives it is poor or rich or middle class. But rachamim is... I give the $100 bill to the person sitting on the ground, holding out his hat, asking for spare change. Chapter 45 tells us to use our rachamim in order to tap into our love. So that's why a lot of times you hear people talk about chapter 45 as a third emotion. It's not really a third emotion. The object of chapter 45 is not compassion. The object is another form of love, but the particular approach of chapter 45 is to, ac to access the love through rachamim. And he explains like this. Upon whom should you have pity? Upon Hashem Himself. Hashem has descended to this world, or at least a nitzutz eloki, a spark of God's holy energy, has descended to this world in the form of your soul. And that soul is in a deep, dark exile within your body and your animal soul and does not get to exercise autonomy here in this world. It's like, um, it's repressed. And um, this soul, even if you were to live a life of perfect piety, would still be, would still suffer being <coughs> cut off from all of the great spiritual revelations to which it is privy in the higher worlds. And now when that is exacerbated by sin, obviously it makes the experience of the godly soul in this world all the more egregious. So we have to have pity upon Hashem himself who is suffering degradation through your soul's embodiment. We refer to this as Melech Asabarahitim. Berahatim. It's a Pasak in Shirashirim. Melech Asr Birahatim. The king who is bound in the gutters. The king is tied down in gutters flowing with filth. And says the Zayar Birahite Maicha. Berehite Meicha means the gutters of the mind. You know, get your mind out of the gutter. Well, this is, your mind is the gutter. 
What's the gutter? It's an interesting metaphor. Stream of consciousness. Thoughts are flowing. The, the godly soul, which is embodied, is subject to all of these fleeting thoughts. It's forced to experience this. And it is a degrading experience. So we are urged to contemplate the plight of the godly soul. And if we do so, if we do so, we will automatically be moved to feel compassion. Remember, just like any of these meditations, we're not meditating on the feeling, we're meditating on an, on an idea, and then if you think about the idea enough, it will automatically bring you to the emotion. So we're not thinking about compassion, we're thinking about a situation which arouses our compassion. The situation that we're contemplating is how Hashem himself experiences degradation through the embodiment of the godly soul. Through the godly soul's experience in a, in a, in a body. He goes on and he explains this is the dynamic which is personified by the encounter between Yankiv, Avinu, and Rachel their first encounter, where it says that Yankiv met Rochel and he kissed her and he cried. He lifted up his eyes and he cried. So Yankiv is Rachamim, the three patriarchs of Rome, Yitzchok and Yankiv, are Chesed, Gvorah and Tiferes, respectively. So Yankiv is the personification of Rachamim. <coughs> he meets Rachel. Rachel is the personification of Knesset Yisrael, the bank of souls, Malchus. And the personification of compassion cries for the souls and lifts its eyes aloft to the source of compassion known as Ovarachamim, the compassionate father, and then kisses her. The kisses are when the mouth of the Jew is placed upon the divine mouth, that is, by speaking words of Torah. The hog is when the arms, the limbs of the Jew, are in, intertwined with the limbs, so to speak, of Hashem, the 248 positive mitzvahs being proverbially considered the 248 positive commandments, or the 248 limbs of the king. 248 positive commandments are the 248 limbs of the king. So therefore, what, what happens? Compassion upon the Jewish people, the plight of the, the souls, leads to an involvement in Torah study and the performance of mitzvahs. And the emotional drive behind these, uh, the, this Torah study and mitzvahs is love. Where's the love coming from? The love is coming from the compassion. This is the deeper meaning of what we say. It's a Lashon HaPasuk, but also we say it in Davening. Yankiv Asherpoda es Avraham, Jacob who redeemed Abraham. Now there is no story in which Jacob redeemed Abraham. So what is it referring to when it says Jacob redeemed Abraham? It means that Jacob personifies compassion. Compassion <coughs> redeemed love. Abraham personifies love. That when you're having trouble feeling love, sometimes you take a side door, access your compassion, and that will bring you to the love. So think about the plight 
of the godly soul and the degradation to God himself. Feel compassion, pity for that plight. And this, this will move you to love, which will then be expressed as the kisses and the hugs of Torah study and mitzvah performance. That's chapter 45. Make sense? More or less? Okay, good. So let's go to 46. Chapter 46 is a kind of love, another kind of love. And this is a kind of love that is accessible to everyone. It's shavalachol nefesh. It is accessible to everyone. What that means is, you might say at this point, well, you know, I don't know if I'm such an intellectual. I don't know if I'm so abstract of a thinker. I don't know if I can meditate on all these ideas. So we say like this. This one, this next one, this is easy. Because... It's almost automatic. It's based on a, on a mechanism which, is, which operates on its own. And all we have to do is trigger that mechanism. What is it? There's a concept which Shleim HaMelech in his, in his Proverbs describes as like the water reflects the face to the face. If you look in a clear, undisturbed body of water and uh, reflects your face to you, you see the face in the water with which uh, you are looking into the water. Cain, so too, lev ish Elhoish, the heart of a man to a man. There is something about the heart that reciprocates emotion. There's something about the heart that reciprocates emotion. It's not something that you have to think about consciously. That's the good news. It's just the nature of the heart that when somebody <coughs> has feelings for you, it stirs feelings in you toward them. So we don't have to contemplate in order to create this love. All we have to do is become aware that we are loved. If you feel loved, then you will love. Automatically. Yeah? What about unrequited love? Unrequited love? Yeah. Like in the romance novels? Right. Yeah, why are you making trouble? <laughs> you want to understand the phenomenon of unrequited love? Well, since Shlema Melech says that it is natural to reciprocate emotion, then I suppose we would have to say that the phenomenon of unrequited love is when one overrides the natural state. In other words, if you're normal, if your uh, factory-installed settings are still operating, then you should love somebody who loves you. I suppose if dysfunction sets in, then you don't love those who love you, which I suppose would be summed up by the famous Groucho Marx line, which was then uh, fame, made, made even more famous by Woody Allen, I would never belong to a club that would have someone like me as a member. Okay, but that's dysfunctional. Shlema Melech is saying that if a club would ask you to become a member, all of a sudden you would feel an affinity toward that club. If they want you, you want them. So what we have to do here in chapter 46 is realize that we are loved. And he does this with a, with a parable. Um, this parable, by the way, I 
have told to my children, my young children, as a bedtime story. All of them have heard it from me when they were, when they were little. And I didn't tell them it's a chapter of Tanya, and I didn't tell them the deeper meaning behind it. I just told it to them as a story. So I'll tell it to you the way that I tell it to them, which is pretty much the way that it's told in Tanya. He says like this, that there was once a poor, despised, and wretched man. And he had no friends. He lived alone by himself on a garbage hill. And one day, the king's retinue was passing by the garbage dump. And the king stopped. And he alighted from his carriage. Is that the right way to use that verb? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And descended into the garbage dump and made his way straight toward this lonely, wretched, despised man. And he walked up to him and he picked him up from the garbage. And he brought him, the king brought this man with him. And together they went to the palace. And then upon entering the palace, they entered room after room, each room more exclusive than the last until finally they were in the king's inner chamber where not even the highest ranking officials were allowed to enter. And there, alone with this lonely, despised, and wretched man, the king hugged him and he kissed him. That's the story. So if you're thinking about reciprocal love, <clears throat> how do you think that lonely, despised, and wretched man felt when he was the object of such unusual love? Furthermore, I will ask you, how do you think that it affected that love, that reciprocal love, that the king and this man are on such different levels. In other words, the fact that this is not only a peer, a colleague, someone of equal status showing him love, but somebody who is far above him, that he is at the lowest station in life and the king is at the highest station. This huge gulf between their, their, their levels would only intensify whatever natural reciprocal reaction already would take place. Yeah, this makes sense? So where are we going with this? Here's where we're going. This is the part I don't tell my kids. I let them find out later on their own. This story is our story, collectively, historically. We were in Egypt, and we were at the lowest point of degradation. We were in the worst spiritual state. 49th gate of impurity on the brink of spiritual extinction. Lost among idolaters and steeped in their ways. And it was in that situation that Hashem himself came down not through a shliach, not an emissary as Maxwell House says every not through an emissary, not through a fiery angel, but the Holy One, blessed be He, in His honor and glory, personally came down to Egypt to remove us from that situation.
And not only did he remove us from that situation, but from that situation he took us, just 49 short days later, to the highest level of spiritual revelation that anyone had ever experienced. At the giving of the Torah, the revelation at Sinai, we experienced a oneness with Hashem that not even the highest angels experience. This is exactly the story of the great king and the lowly wretched commoner. And that the great king finds this lowly wretched commoner when he's in his lowest state of degradation and from there personally removes him and places him at the apex of, uh, of human achievement. So if one will contemplate these dynamics in the story of the Exodus, one will automatically experience a reciprocal emotional reaction. One will feel loved, and consequently one will feel loving. And there's a distinct advantage to this particular form of uh, love, which is if you claim I'm on too low of a level to meditate on these concepts and feel love for God, let's say you would have such a claim. What I would tell you is maybe for the, the, all the other love meditations we've spoken about, you might have a valid point, but in chapter 46, the lower level, the lower of a level you are on, the, the better this works. Because part of the dynamic is the discrepancy, the gulf between the lover and the beloved. Part of what intensifies the natural reciprocal reaction is precisely this, that the lowly wretched commoner is on such a low level. Maybe just a little bit more about 46, but he, he describes this relationship, perhaps it's a bit of a mixed metaphor, um, but he describes this relationship in terms of marital union. This, this is where, here in chapter 46, the Alter Rebbe tells us how Asher Kedishonu B'mitzvaiso V'tzivonu the formula that we recite in a blessing that's made upon the performance of a mitzvah is actually a reference to our marital relationship with God. Marriage is referred to as kiddushin. Therefore, asher kiddushonu b'mitzvah means he who sanctified us with his mitzvahs, but it also means he, he who married us with his mitzvahs. He married us. He made us his wife through giving us mitzvahs. Really, if you combine the two metaphors here, it's the story of a king who finds his beloved bride and she is in a state of, of lowliness and degradation. And that not only does he remove her from that, but then he brings her to the palace and he marries her. 
What does it mean he marries her? He becomes one with her. That's what Hashem did. He didn't just get us out of our situation and then leave us on an even playing field. He took us with him. And he didn't just take us with him as a sidekick. He took us with him and then he merged with us. In, in, in such a manner that the only way to convey it to the human mind is by likening it to marital union. So you think about that. Just think about the fact that this happened. And that's got to stir something in you. Okay. Chapter 47. Chapter 47 is a continuation of chapter 46. Chapter 47 is still talking about the reciprocation or the... Uh, the, like the water mirrors a face to a face, so does the heart of a man mirror the emotions of another man. In fact, I suppose I should tell you that the reciprocation principle is the underlying theme of four chapters of Tanya. 46, 47, 48, and 49. We're going to be talking about reciprocation, for these four chapters. We introduced the principle in chapter 46 and we described it in terms of the story of the Exodus. <coughs> in chapter 47, we answer an unspoken question, which is, How am I supposed to relate to this story when it happened so long ago? So the Altareb in chapter 47 starts like this, and he says, Behold Doyavadoy. In every single generation, and in every single day, a person must view himself as if he had left Egypt today. The Alter Rebbe is paraphrasing a saying of the sages from the Gemara in Psachim. Sages say, <clears throat> you should see, in every generation, you should see yourself as if you had left Egypt. In other words, I suppose that means that, uh, like we say, every single generation we have, a, we have another pharaoh-like figure, and uh, history repeats itself, and uh, you can see the cycle through history, how... Uh, we have another experience that is similar to to, to, the, to the exile and the, the, the persecution we experience in, in, in Egypt. And that's speak on, speaking, I suppose, on a more collective level, on a more general level. But the Al-Tadebe adds, and, and this, he adds the words in order to bring out a deeper meaning, not to change the meaning, but to, to bring out a deeper meaning of this, of this saying. The Altadeva adds the words, every day. It, it, we're not just saying that Jewish history as a whole is a story, is a repetition of the story of, of, of the Exodus. We're saying the Jewish experience of every individual 
on an ongoing basis is the story of the Exodus. It's not just like, you know, tell me what's the Exodus of this generation. That's not only what we mean. We mean, what is the Exodus theme in your personal life, and how have you experienced it today? How are you experiencing it right now? And what the alternative explains here is that, that Exodus is a more all-encompassing term, and it describes the transcendence of limitations. Mitzrayim is Mitzarim, limitations. The very fact that the, the soul has been embodied is a limitation. We were speaking about that just earlier when we were studying chapter 45. The plight of the soul. The soul is embodied, it is limited, it is confined, repressed. And yet, Hashem has given us a means to, to overcome a, a, the, that limitation at will. Now, he points out here that Avram Avino was the first to achieve this, but he earned it through his righteous deeds. We have the same ability, but we didn't earn it. It was, it was just gifted to us, or bequeathed to us, more accurately. And, and that is the ability to rise above our bodily limitations at will, anytime, and to become one with Hashem. How so? Through Torah study and the performance of mitzvahs. He speaks here about the fact that Torah and mitzvahs are not just assignments given by God. It's one of the basic Kabbalistic concepts that the Torah and Hashem are one. The Torah and the Holy One are, are one thing, one entity. The Torah is not a book written by God. Torah is God in book form, so to speak. So the Zohar says, The verse in Parshish Truma. You would normally read that. Bring me Truma. But actually, the ikuchu doesn't mean bring, it means take. Which is a whole other question, why does it say take? Li could mean for me, but also it can be a direct object. It can mean me. The li means take me. Hashem is say, saying to the Jewish people, take me. How? Truma, when you do what I say to do, when you do a mitzvah, you are taking me. You're not just following my orders. You are taking me. Hashem puts himself into the Torah so that by adhering to Torah, we are actually taking Hashem. He says also, uh, this is what it means when we say in davening, So how can you parse that phrase a little bit differently? And he gave to us Hashem Hashem gave us Hashem Ba'ava, lovingly. So Hashem is not the subject of the sentence of the object. Hashem gave us himself. Or like it says, In the light of your countenance, you gave us you gave us yourself. So what is our exodus? 
Our exodus is the ability at any time, anywhere, under any conditions to transcend the limitations of our body and to become absolutely unified with Hashem through adherence to Torah and mitzvahs. And that explains, by the way, why we mention the Exodus in the Shema. This is also a Befeirish of Maxwell House, right? In the Haggadah, it talks about mentioning Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim every day. Where do we mention it? We mention it in the third paragraph of Shema. Why do we mention the Exodus in the Shema? Seemingly, it's not related to the theme. Okay, so we have to mention the Exodus every day? All right. So we just put it together with Shema because we have to do that twice a day anyway, so just put them together. The Altarev explains here that the Exodus and Shema are one thing. They're one idea. Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekinu Hashem Echod. Hashem is our God. Hashem is one. Oneness. Absolute oneness. Through our surrender, our declaration of His unity, Shema being that, that, that anthem of, of absolute surrender, which is also, incidentally, why it is an expression of martyrdom. It doesn't have to be an expression of martyrdom. That's one way that it can be manifest. But it's an expression of surrender to Hashem's oneness. When we make that declaration that Hashem is everything, then effectively we have transcended all of our limitations, all of our separateness. Anything that interposes or seems to interpose between us and God That's why we talk about the Exodus at the end of the Shema. Because every time you say Shema, and every time you do Shema, every time you live Shema, which is you live in a way of declaring God's oneness, and the fact that your life is devoted and surrendered to His oneness, that is a personal Exodus. You are exiting escaping, transcending all limitations. This is also why the Shema ends, or that paragraph of the Shema, the paragraph that speaks about the Exodus, and says, I'm the Lord, your God. Your God, possessive. A personal relationship. He makes himself yours. Just like we say, we could say about every single one of us. He belongs to us. He gave himself to us. And we have free access at any time by merely surrendering to his will. Contemplate that. Contemplate the fact that the exodus is something that is happening right now to you. Then you will feel loved. And when you feel loved, automatically you will feel loving. Was there a question? Somebody was... Yeah. Yeah. question was, what about the limitations of personality? Meaning, I'm good at this, I'm not good at that, I like this, I don't like that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I am, as opposed yeah. to Those are all part of the limitations. It's not just, like, when we say the limitations of the body, we don't just mean physical limitations, like, I can't slam dunk a basketball. But we mean 
everything that has to do with the embodiment of the godly soul. All the limitations that the godly soul undergoes by being in a body, which includes having this personality, which is really the animal soul, shouting loudly over it all the time, and trying to control decision-making. Yes, the transcendence, the personal exodus that we're describing is the ability to overcome all obstacles, those that are around us and those that are within us. Any obstacles of circumstance, as well as obstacles that come from our own nature or habit. But the salient point here is think about the fact that Hashem singled you out for that possibility. He gave you that ability. He chose you to be able to do that. That is an act of love. And when you feel loved, automatically you will feel loving. Anything else? There are situations where people are so challenged and they feel actually hated by God. Yeah, they're not meditating on the right things. They're meditating on the wrong things. I hear the question. People feel hated by God. Um, they're meditating on the wrong things. The whole point of this uh, capacity to activate a personal exodus at any moment means that no matter what you're going through, you can transcend it. See, some of us judge our lives based on what kind of situations Hashem is making for us. But maybe what we can focus on instead is that he gave us the ability to transcend every situation. What Hashem gave us, nobody and no thing can take away from us. No matter what's going on around us, we always have the ability to rise above it and to unite with him. The fact that he gave that to us is an act of love. So all that's being asked of us right here is don't love Hashem. Don't worry about loving Hashem. Just think for a little bit about the fact that Hashem gave you this ability to transcend any situation. If you will think about that, then automatically you will feel loved. And if you feel loved, then automatically you will feel loving. Okay? Okay, good.